Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is Yara Piajamkwan, co-founder and chief product officer of Indonesian digital investment startup Ajib. It was only three years ago that Yara and her fellow Stanford MBA, Anderson Sumarli, launched Ajib with the goal of bringing investing to the masses in Indonesia, the world's fourth most populous country, where until recently stock and mutual fund picking was primarily reserved for a very small elite, really small, as in just 1% to 2% of the entire population of some 280 million. It hasn't taken long for Ajib's new approach to investing to take off. By focusing on financial literacy and investing education, Ajib has quickly developed a growing following of more than a million investors who are drawn to its simple and affordable platform. The company has already raised more than $200 million in Series A and B rounds, and by some metrics, is the fastest-growing unicorn in Southeast Asia. Obviously, this year's rough markets have made some folks less eager to day trade, but Yada is confident that her new cohort of investors has already learned enough about finance to know to focus on the long term. Adjib is taking a similarly broad perspective on its own growth journey, with goals of not just growing investing in Indonesia, but of eventually helping to bring banking and other financial services to a much bigger share of the population than today. So with that, let's get to our conversation with Yada Piajamkwan of Ajib. Welcome to the podcast, Yada. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I understand that the idea for Ajib emerged while you were at Stanford Business School. Tell us about the story of how you met your co-founder, Anderson, and how you came up with the idea. We met on the first weeks of business school. There were not a lot of Southeast Asians there, literally six people. We realized that both of us are thinking about doing something in the region. And so we became brainstorming partners. It turned out that our ideas at the time sucked and we didn't end up pursuing any of them. But what we found out in the process is that we work really well together. So we started thinking about the things that we both know and are passionate about that we can complement each other on. Financial services was one of them. It also is a huge area that nobody has touched before in Indonesia at that time. So we decided to, to do that together. Did you know that you always intended to return to Southeast Asia to launch your first business? I never really had a thought of doing a business in the U.S. I've always wanted to do something in Southeast Asia. This is home. It's much more comfortable. I know the culture really well. But secondly, I really want to feel connected to the customers that I'm building the product for. And I think it's very hard in the U.S. for me to do that because I didn't grow up there. It's hard for me to have the understanding level that I have in Southeast Asia. So for me, it was always that I was going to come back and do something here. That makes sense. And how did you gravitate to the CPO role versus other CXO roles? Was product and marketing something you always knew that you wanted to focus on? Funny that you ask because not really. Throughout my career, prior to Stanford, I didn't do anything marketing or product related. But when we decided to start the company, we knew that product was going to be a very important thing in the company. So I actually spent a lot of time learning about how to do product well, talking to mentors and classmates who have done product before to understand how that is done. I love it. I really like interacting with customers. I still talk to a lot of them. And marketing and product let you do that in different ways. You discover what their behavior is like and how you can make it better. 
so much so that they would want to use your product and therefore become a paying customer. It ends up working well, but it was not planned. How foundational was your experience at Y Combinator to your journey as a founder and with Agile particularly? It was very, very helpful in the early days. YC is like an MBA for a startup. They teach you everything in a very step-by-step manner. They would tell you this is how you incorporate a company in the U.S. They connect you to a lawyer, give you a script and how to talk to your investors, even an email of this is how you close a deal. This is what you send to an investor. So it's very detailed. They also taught you, of course, about product and iteration and how you look at metrics and how you think about growth. I got questions from a lot of people whether or not YC is necessary. And I would say it depends. If you're like me, who was a consultant, just graduated and then got an MBA, it is the fastest way to learn how startup works because it's literally then 101. But if you've worked for an early stage company, then maybe not, right? Maybe you learned that through that experience. But for me, it was very foundational because I had no idea how this whole thing works. A lot of the concepts that YC talks about, even back in 2018, we still use every day in the company. Let's talk a little bit about the product Indonesia and the market. Increasing financial literacy in Indonesia has been a a major aspect of Ajab and the app. Has that always been a key aspect of the plan? Just to give a, a bit of context, about 1, 1.5% of Indonesians invest in stock. That number in the US is probably more than half. They don't have anything. As well as access to banking is also about 50% of the population. Even in Thailand, it's closer to 100, and in the US, it's definitely 100. It's a country where a lot of people are discovering these things for the first time. So education is a big part of what we do. We have a responsibility to guide people to invest correctly for the first time. The way we teach them when they first come is very important. The way we do it is a little bit different. We have YouTube videos teaching people how to invest. We have webinar, but the fact is that majority of young people don't gravitate towards those kind of stuff. What works really well with them is something more social friends telling them what to buy, how to buy, a chat. We have a chat feature in the app that they can read what people are saying. Most people are too shy to type, so they prefer a chat format where they can just read and follow through thought process of other people. Most of our customers in the early years already know that they wanted to invest. Didn't know how though, but already have that need. And it was not fulfilled because prior to us, the process was offline and difficult. It was submitting paper, waiting three weeks for a stock account. You have to download the software into your laptop type of stuff. There was also a minimum requirement uh, of money you need to have. So you cannot just start with $5. They wanted to do it. The product was too difficult. So they kind of gave up on it and therefore they don't know how. So our job is not to convince them it's important, but our job is once they land on the platform to tell them how they select stock. So if you want a low risk, blue chip, this is what you do. You talked about how the initial customers didn't need as much education. As it's growing and you're going after different cohorts of customers and perhaps those with less knowledge or uh, appetite for risk and investment, how has that changed your approach to financial literacy for your customer base? The first few cohorts um, are people who have really wanted to use something like this for a while and are very happy to have found us. 
Later cohorts take longer to adopt because they're not sure if they're ready for stock investment yet. I would say the education aspect remains the same. Once they get onboarded, we make sure that we teach them how to use it, what to pick and what to buy and how to allocate money. But the process of getting them onto the app is different. For the later cohorts, people take longer to be ready themselves to invest in stocks. They would do more research. They talk to more people. They looked at the market for a while. In that process, we try to give as much information up front as possible for people. For example, we show a journey of an investor of how they became investors. But honestly, the most important um, channel for us uh, communication-wise and growth-wise has been our own customer. Because with financial services, no matter how much we as a company tell you that you should invest, that it's good and this is how to do it, nothing will convince you like a friend who say, hey, have you invested yet? I have this app that I bought stocks on and, and mutual funds and it's great. Why don't you give it a try? Here are my first five stocks. That always works the best out of everything that we've tried so far in financial services. In terms of your target customers, is it fairly concentrated in the younger Gen Z millennial age groups or given how little stock investing overall there has been in Indonesia, are there also older groups that are in your target zone? We're targeting a new generation of investors, people who have not invested before, who are now investing for the first time. It can be any age, really. Exactly. It can be any age. It just so happens that Indonesia's medium age is 27. So they're very young. And most of our customers are millennial. But we're not targeting a specific age range. We're just targeting people who are discovering these things for the first time. Have you found things on financial inclusion that you think would be transferable to other markets or countries that are trying to do similar things? I think that if you're talking about a young country who investing is a smaller subset of the population, something social and something about their friends and family works really well. The way I learn about investing is through my parents. They would teach me this is how you do stuff. That is very important. I would think about how do you empower the selected few who know about it to tell their group of friends? And then how do you then empower that person to tell more people? Because it's always the most impactful. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that government policies actually help drive a lot of this. In Thailand, the reason why we adopted mutual funds so quickly and so well is because we have a tax reduction policy. So if you buy mutual funds at the end of the year, your income gets deducted by the mutual funds you buy and you pay lower tax. Indonesia doesn't have anything. So literally, there is no uh, encouragement of adoption of mutual funds. I know fintech has been really booming in Indonesia in recent years. Do you ha Is there a sense, given the economic challenges globally in recent months, if that will impact interest in investing? We have not seen impact in terms of customer churning or in terms of customer reducing their funds in the app. We are very happy about that because it shows the correct behavior of investing, right? I think that that reflects how financial literacy have really improved because otherwise you would have seen a lot of people panic, sell and pull out their money into something else. I would admit that we see lesser trading behaviors in these times. When market is going up, you see a lot of day trading, swing trading, people who take profit in short term, that type of stuff, which um, drives up the market volume and the market activity. We see much less of that in this period of time. But for us, it's not about um, short term volume or revenue. 
we want to grow with this customer. We're working on digital banking. We're working on crypto. We want to be their financial services partner for a long time because they're very young and they will have a lot more needs going forward. For us, it's more about the fact that they will stay and they are on the platform using maybe money market mutual fund as a safe investment during these times. You mentioned crypto and I, you guys, I think, have recently adopted uh, one of the Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs as a mascot. <laughs> I'm just wondering, what are your aspirations on increasing access to the crypto market for consumers in Indonesia? And how do you see that market developing? Crypto in Indonesia is a very interesting phenomenon because in places like the US or Japan, where crypto initially became popular, you guys have known stock investing ETFs for a long time before you discovered crypto as an investment vehicle. The adoption mindset is a bit different for consumers. In Indonesia, people are discovering crypto and stock at the same time, for the first time. Some of them discover crypto before they discover stock, because before we enter, crypto was a much easier product to access than a stock product for young people last year. There were about um, 6 million crypto investors, while there were only two or three stock investors. To us, the reason why we decided to go into crypto is... First, we think that it's a very important innovation in financial services that we want to get our hands on, even though right now we are not yet into DeFi or offering anything rather than exchange for our customer, but we want to make sure that we develop this capability. And the second reason is because for our customer, when they build their investment portfolio, a big portion of them want to have a portion of that in crypto. That's becoming a way that a modern investor in Indonesia at least conducts how they allocate the portfolio. They don't put all of their money in it, but they want to have some exposure. So that's why we decided to extend our offering to crypto as well so that they can learn about that and invest correctly. You guys have obviously had quite a meteoric rise. What would you say are the biggest lessons you've learned in terms of scaling a fintech startup these last few years? This is a difficult question. We've been through a lot and we're still quite early. One of the challenges that we remind ourselves of every day is how do we grow faster than a company's growth? The company is going to be 500 people by the end of the year. How do we already know how to manage a seven, 800 company? Because for whatever the reason, we cannot be the blocker of the growth of the company. So for the last three co-founders, it's important for us to always make sure that we are outscaling the company, whether that is by talking to mentors, reading up, experimenting with new management, recognizing things that will come in the future. That was a hard thing for us first-time founders. I've talked to a lot of repeat founders and it's not a case for them because they already know what is going to come at what stage of the company for them is much easier. The other thing I would say is, at least from my point of view, uh, talent in Southeast Asia is very difficult to find. Talent for a 50-people company, yes, there is a lot of them. But talent for a 500-people company, an executive who can take on that scope, is really hard because no one has seen fintech scale at that size before in Indonesia. Right now, that is the biggest challenge for us. So now we're hiring globally. It's not easy, but you got to find someone who have done it before. How much of that can be dealt with virtually or, or remote. Uh, obviously, that's harder with an executive who's you really want to manage the business as opposed to a software engineer. We're a work from anywhere company because during the pandemic, we went remote. Now we have an office and we encourage teams to meet up often, but we're still work from anywhere. So we don't force people to go into office. 
I would say that for team members, it's pretty easy. We have a lot of tools that manage remote work really well. For executives, we have a lot of non-Indonesian executives, but they live close by. So they can travel once every two, three months to come see people and, and interact with customers. It is much harder if you live in the U.S. where our time zone is flipped and when you wake up, everybody goes to sleep. And we're trying to figure out how to manage it. But I think it will continue in this direction. You guys have been called the fastest growing unicorn in Southeast Asia. Uh, you've obviously raised more than $200 million in funding. Do you feel pressure in growing so rapidly and being highlighted in that way? Yes, definitely. The unicorn status comes with a lot of perks and also a lot of pressure. So a lot of perks first. It represents stability for our employees and talent that we're going to recruit in the future. It also represents some sort of a pride for the country, for the regulators, because in stock, they have not had a unicorn startup that they work with before. For them to realize that Indonesia has potential to create a unicorn in this space, and we actually work very, very closely with the regulators, is super rewarding uh, for them. So it has helped. Of course, it creates a lot of pressure because from investor point of view, then Unicorn have certain expectations that you would have to meet in terms of revenue, in terms of growth. That's a lot of pressure. But as founders, one of our jobs is to learn how to deal with this pressure because it's not going away. I am sure that IPOing a company is much harder than running a Unicorn. Just think about the share load of what it's going to add on to your plate. What I spend a lot more time on is with employees. In the past, companies take quite long to become a unicorn. By the time they're a unicorn, they have processes and ways of working that are quite mature. Uh, whereas for us, we were only two and a half years old. So you can imagine the kind of mess that we have. Learning how to communicate and align that with people is something that we have had to do much more frequently than previously. As a female co-founder in the world of fintech, what has your experience been like? Do you feel that the space is becoming more open to founders from more diverse backgrounds. Right now, we're very lucky that investors are much more supportive and open. And so they're open to the idea of diverse founders and women founders in particular across industry. But I do think that in Southeast Asia, there are still very few women founders, especially at a bigger company state like Unicorn or IPO. There are very few of those examples. Support is increasing, but what is lacking is a role model. It's very hard to imagine being a woman founder of a fintech who manages life with kids, family, and all of that. We do hire a lot of women. Half of our executive team are women. And when they leave, they leave and found their own company. That's what we hope for our executives. And a few have done that. The point of joining an early stage startup, which we were uh, when they joined us three years ago, is for them to learn how to be a founder, for them to leave and become one. I would like to see companies build this next generation of diverse and female founders so that you have more of them. That's the best way, actually, is for them to see that it can be done and someone has done it. Hopefully, we can be one of those driving forces behind this. When you think about the company and your role five years down the line towards the end of the decade, do you have a vision for where you'll be by then uh, and what success will mean at that point for yourself and for Ajab? That's a very long time. <laughs> One thing I appreciate and I'm trying to learn from this whole tech winter, so to say, 
is it teaches us how to run a startup in an entirely different environment. We started the company right at the high of tech and tech investment. One thing I can see for sure is that the next five years will be very different in how we run the company. We need to be more careful, more reserved. We cannot go and pump money higher expensively and spend. We as a company will have to build those muscles on how to be a persevering company, on how to be an efficiently run company that incumbents and big companies have spent time doing for a long time and we have not. So it's going to be a new phase of building new capabilities, which is also very exciting and fun um, in their own way. In terms of where we think we'll be, we're excited about building unique products with stocks, crypto, and banking all together that contribute to the ecosystem. So hopefully in the next five years, we can do a few that customers enjoy using. And I would think you would hope that Indonesia has made a real leap in terms of the share of population that is actively investing. Definitely. Indonesia is a massive country. Is regional expansion something you guys even think about? Right now, we're still very focused on Indonesia, and we believe that being focused is important. As you said, it's a huge market, but it's also not an easy one. We want to make sure that we dedicate all of our resources and our time to build something meaningful here first. So we're not thinking about it yet. We believe that it's important for us right now and probably in the next few years to be focused. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks, as always, to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Nellum. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.